This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. As we are near to the end of the year, in this episode, I speak to Shai Oster from The Information to discuss the major events that shaped Northeast Asia in 2017. Hi, Shai. How are you doing? Where are you based in? I'm based here in Hong Kong. I'm looking out over Victoria Harbor. Nice, nice. I would love to visit Hong Kong again. And it's now getting cold there, right? Define cold. It's not hot anymore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But you are one of the guests that I've always been wanting to get on my show. I'm talking to Shai Oster, Asia Bureau Chief in The Information, a site that I'm a subscriber of. And I think it warrants no introduction to my audience, but still we have to introduce. So Shai, I wanted to get to know you better. How did you start your career? I started my career as a crime reporter in the hills of Western Massachusetts, chasing murderers, rapists, and car crashes and fires in, in Greenfield, Massachusetts, which actually is a, it's a long, but as far away and as different from what I'm doing now as you could possibly get and still be called a journalist. And after a couple of years in writing about small-time crooks doing big-time crime, to be honest, I ended up going to journalism school and from there ended up at China almost randomly, to be honest, having no prior experience with Chinese, Asia, or anything. But I came over in 1998 to China as what's called a foreign expert working for China Daily, which is the English language publication run by the Chinese government, where I was essentially copy editing propaganda. But I loved it so much, I got bitten by the China bug. You know, Beijing back in the 19, late 90s. This is pre-Starbucks. You know, it was a big treat to find the McDonald's. Hardly anyone owned a car, let alone a, a private apartment. Just a different world back then. And, and I really got bit. And so that led to a career where I mostly spent time covering China. Uh, I had a brief interlude covering OPEC for Dow Jones in London, and then uh, joined the journal in 2005 in Beijing, part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team in 2008. And in 2010 or 11, I forget, I joined Bloomberg here in Hong Kong as an investigative reporter, pivoted to venture capital. And then last year, at a, as a middle-aged guy, I decided to join a startup, which has actually been fantastic. I joined the information and launched the Asia Bureau here in Hong Kong in October. And we just celebrated, the information just celebrated its four-year anniversary this Monday. And so in your career journey, what are the interesting career lessons that you can share with my audience? So basically, my rule of thumb is avoid the crowd. I'm not, so and it works in, in, in the journalistic world, it works very simply. If there's a scrum of journalists chasing one source, I can't compete. My L, I'm, not a, I'm not six foot tall and I'm not super aggressive and I know someone else will get there first. So I always go, always have to find a different angle, a different direction into the story. And that's actually worked very well because you'll find something fresh if you avoid the crowd. I hate going to press conferences. I hate going to any sort of conference because the likelihood of finding a fresh story there is pretty unlikely because it's already well-trodden ground. And that's, I think, true for a lot of things in life where if there's a situation where everybody's crowding around, like a market theme or a business, if everyone's crowding the field, you're just fighting for scraps. And there are ways to win in that kind of competition. For me, it's been much more productive to go opposite from where the crowd's going. Before we begin the main topic of the day, I also want you to introduce the information to my audience and what's your role and coverage there now? 
Sure. So the information is a four-year-old startup based in San Francisco with uh, bureaus in New York and Hong Kong. We were founded by Jessica Lesson, was a um, star reporter at the, and editor at the Wall Street Journal. And she decided to launch this as a way to not have to deal with all the time-wasting reporting of covering press releases and press conferences. And we only do exclusive original stories. And it means that if stories that you won't find anywhere else. And we write about the business of technology. Many of us are Wall Street Journal refugees. So if you think of the front page journal, the front page of the Wall Street Journal, that's what we try to make. That's what we aspire to do is every story should be at the quality or better of a page one Wall Street Journal story. The other important thing about the information is it's subscriber only. We have at this point no advertising we only have one owner which is Jessica we don't take we don't have outside funding from venture capitalists so that's an interesting model because we answer to one person well and that person is our reader and so our motivation you know I always say when, when you're reporting a story whether it's politics or business or culture you always have to remember who's paying the bills and that's what's motivating the person doing the service or writing the book or whatever it might be. And in our case, the person paying my bills are my readers. And so I have to service them. I have to keep in mind what they want, not what the advertiser wants, not what the venture capitalist wants, not what the, you know, certainly we need to keep in mind what Jessica wants. But at the end of the day, she's also servicing or serving the, the, the reader. It's actually an old model, right? This is what newspapers used to be like back in the day. You put a dime into a newspaper box and pull out a paper. But so what's interesting is the amount of publicity we get because of our subscription model at a time when the newspaper and media industry is suffering, our business has proven to be successful. Uh, we continue growing our, our readership. We are not losing money. We're making money. We're actually now in the midst of a very aggressive and ambitious expansion where we plan to double our reporting staff. It's interesting because that's also a philosophy I shared with just a lesson that I think subscription model is the only way ahead for media and I think that advertising is just not the business model to go for and I think the only customer you have is the reader itself. I think we get to the main topic of the day. So today we're not going to talk about any new breaking stories or exclusives, but we are talking about a review of what I call the Northeast Asia region for 2017. And when I define Northeast Asia, I will define China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, that area. Beforehand, we actually have a discussion of like the five events that we want to talk about. And I think to start off the first event of this year, I think one of the biggest stories, which I just covered in one of the previous episodes of the podcast with uh, Tim Kaban from Blue was SoftBank's vision fund of a US $100 billion. And I think what was interesting to me was that it supersedes all the other funds out there. I think if you do a comparison, Anderson Horowitz is only $5.6 billion in total. Goldman Sachs and Blackstone is only about only $25 billion for their kind of private equity fund. So this fund is actually way out of hand. I want to ask you a couple of things. I know you covered a story on SoftBank's vision fund. What are the problems the fund faces given they can target competitors to startups it already invest in and also its own investment thesis is also up for debate? So yeah, this is an unprecedented sum of money. It's the largest private equity fund, not just tech fund ever. It's got a timeline of about five years. So they have to spend about $20 billion a year. Venture capitalists see hundreds of deals a year and make only a handful of investments. And they typically only are deploying, you know, a couple hundred million dollars at most. So imagine how much deal flow you need to see to find investments that you can deploy $20 billion a year. It's just staggering. The other problem is to make a serious impact on your capital deployed, you have to, each investment has to be really substantial. Now, how many private companies, and in some cases it can be public companies, can take these kinds of large investments? And if you, so you're coming in and oftentimes there are 
you know, taking uh, offering very high valuations. The question then is, what is your exit going to be to recover, you know, to make money for your LPs? The other question is, Masayoshi Shisan is undoubtedly a genius, right? There's just no doubt about it, right? He's made some of the best bets ever. Of course, Alibaba, what is it, $20 million that's now worth $90 billion or something, among other bets that were just just genius bets. But his best performance was in early stage investments, not the late stage investments that he, by nature of these large checks that he has to write, is where he's going to be deploying. Now, some argue that in some cases, actually, what private equity writes late stage checks, and they can do pretty well, you know, pre-IPO. So you still get a 3x or 5x or maybe 10x if you're coming in late stage. And in some cases, it's often once the field is cleared a little bit, you can have a better sense of who might be the winner. The Masa thesis is that if you just pour billions of dollars, at that point, money will trump everything, right? So it's Uber versus Didi. If you just give Didi the gazillions of dollars to win on the subsidy battle, then they'll do fine. But that's not always the case, right? They have acted, you know, in India, they've had disastrous investments. So money doesn't always solve all problems. And I think that there is a very strange rules or traditions that the Vision Fund have broken. For example, they invested in Snapdeal and Snapdeal didn't perform. Now they invested in their competitor Flipkart. And then you have this whole anti-Uber coalition, which Masa had invested in earlier with Ola, Grab and Didi and now they're investing in Uber and they keep using Lyft as a bait to Uber. So do you find that moving forward it is going to be very difficult to compete with a fund like Vision Fund because if you think that they're actually going to do money is everything then how are new companies going to be able to deal with all these juggernauts of money that's flowing into the ecosystem? It's actually good because it depends. The way people are looking, from what I understand, a vision fund now is vision fund is the exit. It's not a competitor. You grow big enough. You're like, well, we can IPO or we can sell the Masa. That's true. You know, and he'll give us some crazy valuation and screw it, right? And so that is one possibility. The VCs are feeling crowded, right? When Masa shows, when, when Vision Fund rocks up to the table, everyone else is like, oh, okay, you know, we got to back down because there's no way we can write a bigger check. They can argue that, oh, we'll understand you better. But Masa is also, he's not just coming with a big check, but he's a, just a genius at selling himself and endearing himself to these entrepreneurs with, he does have a vision. He has a very clearly articulated investment thesis. And that's why a lot of investors will go with him is because of the way he articulates his vision. It's not just a paycheck. The other thing I think is going to happen is that I have this, this is my prediction for 2018 is that some other Middle Eastern oil petro state you know, is going to say, Hey, wait a second. We need to diversify our economy, too. We got like a couple billion dollars on the ledger. Why don't we do our own vision fund? Like, and I can totally imagine, you know, it's not like there's a lot of love lost between different Persian Gulf states. They all kind of, you know, when I covered OPEC, one of the things that surprised me the most was how much they hate each other. I could totally imagine, you know, Qatar, for example, right? They've got all this gas reserves. They have, what, less than a million actual population. They're terrified of their neighbors. They need money. There's got to be some banker in Wall Street right now hustling around the Persian Gulf trying to cobble together, you know, the deeper vision fund. You know, Abu Dhabi. Imagine a coalition, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, Bahrain. And then in that case, you'll have an interesting situation where 
paper profits could be two funds of that size are competing. They actually can both make money, right? Because it's kind of like when you have these mergers, right? So like, it doesn't matter when you when you have, you, you could kind of like how SoftBank went into Lyft and to Uber, right? Because at the end of the day, you know that it doesn't matter which side of that deal you're going to be on because there's probably going to be a merger. So you're going to make money either way. And so if you have two competitors, right, they'll be like, well, we can both drive up the price, which is fine because we're both going to be able to do paper profits. And then the IPO, if the company's good, great. If not, we already made our, you know. Yeah, I, I think this is good, an interesting prediction because we also hear rumors of Masana trying to do the second vision fund with another 150 billions. Yeah, he said it. Yeah, he said it. He, he said he was going to do two and three. Yes, that's right. So there's just a question of, I mean, there's only so much money in the world. So it's really going to become very interesting to, there are only one, two big funds that's going to exist in this space. And with Masayoshi-san, because he's much more knowledgeable in the space, he's probably like the top fund, but there will always be a number two, number three that will pop up as well, like the investment banks. Yeah, and also remember, this fund isn't, it, it, they call it a, an investment fund, but it's actually a bond, right? Because about, you're right, about more than 50% of it. So the, so the actual like thing that looks like a VC fund is, I think, like one third. And then the thing that looks like a bond, it's paying like a, it's, like, it's paying an annual coupon of like seven, eight percent, which is pretty good. But that's a bond. And when you think of it that way, you know, hmm, that's money that somebody would have put into T-bills and make very little return. And they so you could see that kind of like when you think, OK, this is not money that would have gone into the high risk pool. It's money that would have gone into the low risk pool. You see what I'm saying? That's right. Yep, I agree. Yeah. So I have a second event that I thought was interesting this year, but it's in my region in India, which is Alibaba and Tencent extending their reach into Southeast Asia and India. And at the same time, Amazon is doing the same from the US. This year is kind of the entry play. Where do you see the fault lines are and how these companies are going to do it out, given that Amazon, also in both geographies of Southeast Asia and India, as an aggressive competitor? Do you see Tencent and Alibaba buy versus build, whether they would prefer to buy or would they prefer to build out in these regions as well? So it is interesting. It's the first level playing field or almost level playing field for the East, East, West battle. And increasingly because the U.S. market is going to be shut closed off to Chinese players because of protectionism and probably a trade war. There's going to be more and more Chinese money going into Southeast Asia and India. Southeast Asia is always comfortable for, for the Chinese because of the cultural, you know, there's a whole large overseas Chinese community there that they feel comfortable with. They sort of feel familiar with the terrain. It reminds them of how China used to be in some, you know, in terms of development, maybe 20, 30 years ago. So they feel very comfortable there. Now, in terms of buy versus build, Tencent and Alibaba. It's interesting. So Tencent, it, it's had a really, it's a, they're genius investors, right? But they've always had a problem as operators of businesses outside of their core of gaming and social. And they've had a really hard time exporting social overseas, right? Tencent has failed in exporting WeChat as, as a platform. And that's because I think social media is very cultural specific. And it's just like WeChat for me is sort of cumbersome to use but like super intuitive for Chinese. I think these are only Facebook has figured out a, a platform that sort of has become cross-border, but it's actually quite difficult. If you look so line, right, sort of regional specific, it's sort of, so communication is cultural. And so exporting that and, and reinventing it for different places is just hard to do. So I think that for Tencent, they'll probably make lots of strategic investments 
but they'll buy. I don't think they'll build. I think it's Hike is the one they're buying in India. Do you see the possibility that Tencent will also bring JD and Meituan Dianping out of China along the way to these two regions as well? So that's interesting. So JD and Meituan have very different strategies. Meituan is very conservative because they have so much market still to gain within China. You know, we had an interview with their head of strategy and he was very like, you know, we said America is like, no way. Southeast Asia makes sense, but they're very hesitant because I think it's challenging for them. But they were looking for, you know, they're talking to all the big players out there, including because they're, they're interesting for them is Southeast Asia has the same urban density that they think makes their model work. So the model of like, you know, on-demand services doesn't work in suburban America because it just costs too much to drive back and forth. Whereas, you know, a city like Beijing or Jakarta, you can get that economies of scale because of the population density. So that means to me, I think they're they're thinking of some sort of investments in companies like Gojek where it's they because they like also the high frequency model so the high frequency apps are good ways to get traffic because Meituan it's interesting is 90% of its traffic is coming from its own apps it's not being shuttled through Tencent or other platforms so that's one thing JD I think is already taking steps in Southeast Asia with investments in I can't remember off the top of my name on the top of my head but JD is already looking at Southeast Asia. Going back, Alibaba, obviously, Alibaba has made lots of investments and even t taken over. Is, it La is Lazada the outright acquisition? Yes, Lazada. I think still there's some percentage left for the management. But yes, they have almost taken the most of Lazada. And I think the most dramatic development is ATM, where they took a stake and Paytm, at least from you know, the Ali affiliate, the back, the actual guts of that company is and finance the algorithms the the software running that platform but they're not going to rebrand it it's interesting to see that amazon can show up anywhere and just be amazon but the chinese they can't just show up and say hey we're alibaba for don't have that kind of global brand even now even when there's such behemoths i think this is interesting for the case of paytm in india because google has recently also started launching its own payment service into India as well. So you are also getting like not just one US company entering that market, you have another US company heading into the market and then you have all these Chinese companies also within the same space, but they work with the local players to fend off these Western tech companies. Yeah. And so the question then is what will win over the Indian consumer, right? What what will matter? And this is really the first time we get to see who, who, who's got a better game. I think this is a very interesting thing. We will continue to watch it. So I think the third event I thought was interesting was, I think you had covered it pretty substantially with the information, is China's control of big data and tech companies entering into China. What do you see will be the implications with China exerting so much control into Chinese and foreign tech companies entering there? You know, it's basically the implications are bad. <laughs> so one, one implication is that America is shutting itself like is a trade war. The reason why all of these Chinese tech deals into the US are being shut down is partly because you know what, enough's enough, right? Like guys, you can't have it both ways. You can't not let everybody into China and then try to buy up all these companies in the U.S. It just doesn't work. And so the sentiment in the U.S. is finally tipped. And it's like, you know what? We're just going to play the same game you're going to play. If you want to buy a company in the U.S., you got to keep the data locally. If you can't do technology transfer, it's just kind of like they're, they're kind of getting a taste of their own medicine. The other thing is that this is what I've heard is that the Chinese companies are suffering not only because of the, their investments are, are being batted off, 
but also because for them it's a pain to not be able to, let's say you're, Ali, you're, you're a Chinese bank. How do you expand internationally if your data has to stay within China, right? They started to suffer. Just like you're, from, from, a, from a functional perspective, it's just kind of hard to like keep data within, within your borders if you're a cross-border company. The other thing I think we're seeing is that competition keeps companies sharp. And look at Baidu. I think part of what happened to Baidu is that, you know, they didn't have a competitor and they kind of lost their edge. I mean, you know, so Chinese companies also have a strategy tax problem, right? They need to have two systems, one system within China and one system outside China. And they are not very adaptable to the one outside China. Yeah, it's, it's also, I think these controls are, I think there's going to be a domestic backlash as well. It's kind of a weird situation where on the one hand, the regime is demanding innovation and entrepreneurial spirit, but then saying, but you can't, you can't, you know, don't think too far out of the box, you know, think outside the box, but just a little bit. And if you look at like the great American iconoclastic entrepreneurs, they were way out of the box, right? Steve Jobs was doing drugs and kind of a hippie, right? I'm not saying that all entre entrepreneurs are law-breaking you know, iconoclasts, but there is an element of like, you have to be a little, a little different to create these sorts of important companies. And frankly, a lot of the entrepreneurs in China do have some interesting origins, let's put it that way. But anyway, so I, I think, you know, at some point, if you're a Chinese entrepreneur, you can't use basic tech tools. Like, you can't even use Google Docs and work with a Chinese company. Like, come on, guys. Like, it just becomes counterproductive for your own goal of developing the economy. I think this is going to be its impact domestically. How does it factor in terms of data privacy then? So this is a weird one. So there is a debate within China about data privacy. But like, okay, the thing is, in, in, in the Chinese context, there was never any privacy since, like, you know, since the Communist Revolution. In, in every neighborhood, there's the Neighborhood Watch Committee, which is basically a bunch of old biddies who's, you know, the local grandmas who have sort of selected by the Communist Party. And it's their job to, like, monitor the neighborhood. They're the neighborhood watch. But watching the neighborhood includes, like, so-and-so's acting kind of funny. I think they're anti-communist. Or back in the day, I think, you know, Marsha's pregnant with her third child. She's, you know, or second child. She just broke the one-child family policy. So people are being monitored. The other thing is everybody in China has something called a dangan. It's a personal file that goes back to your, I think, definitely high school. I think it even goes back to your kindergarten. That includes every infraction and every like every everything about you. There's a file, right? And so you get these absurd stories where people have to like when they're applying for jobs, their personal file is in a different city, and they have to go to the city and try to convince somebody to release the file. And people won't be able to switch jobs because the personal file is held by one company, and they won't release it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So everyone's already an observed person in China. They they kind of grew up being observed and spied on, right? So like now, like the idea of like, oh, I'm giving something up. It's like I'm well. Uh, there's nothing to give up. Everybody, you know, the, the government already knows everything about me. They have that file. So they have a very different concept than, than I do as an American. I think this comes into the event fall, which is actually the nature of U.S. and China tech ties. Last year, I was in Silicon Valley, a uh, state for two and a half months in the Singularity University. But of all people I met, I met Xu Xiaoping, which is kind of the China's equivalent of Ron Conway or even bigger because Ron Conway said he's the Xu Xiaoping of USA. So... I'm seeing more and more Chinese investors heading west, but I have never seen the reverse. Do you think that the reverse will ever happen? I mean, yes, the COA is in China. You know, some of these VC funds are going to be in China. Do you think that there's going to be more west to east or east to west? 
the Chinese tech titans of the first generation were funded only by Western investors, right? Which is weird and, and when you think about it. But, they, you know, the local banks and local investors didn't exist. So it was up to, you know, this is this amazing windfall that, that happened to America's pension funds for being able to get into Alibaba back in the day. The dynamic is shifting though, because dollars are less interesting than Remnant B to entrepreneurs. There's sort of a natural thing happening where entrepreneurs are seeing that like, well, if I, if I take US dollars and I have to deal with this conversion currency stuff, and then I, I'm, I have to list overseas, which might be good, it might not be, but might, might not be. And look, our domestic markets are booming. So why don't I just raise Remnant B, I'm earning Remnant B, I'm going to be spending Remnant B, that's simpler. And I'm going to be able to list domestically where my valuations are just silly. So why, you know, so there's increasingly, and there's also, so the entre entrepreneurs are demanding to be, are, are asking for Remnant B, which is why Sequoia now has a Remnant B fund, as well as a lot of the guys now who have dollar funds initially, also raising money from Chinese to deploy. The other thing is that there's this huge explosion in domestic Chinese wealth. So there's like thousands and thousands of private family offices that are looking to deploy money. And so there's that. So there's a supply and demand issue that's sort of crowding out the Western investors and they're finding it increasingly competitive. Now, granted, if you're like an Amazon-like consumer play where you're going to be loss-making for a while and it's a story that Western investors, you can still play overseas. There's another element to the China-US cooperation, which is just like, it's not just money that's sort of closely intertwined between the two countries, but the actual people and ideas. So if you look at, for example, artificial intelligence, the number of Chinese born researchers in the US is crazy, right? They're really important and really influential figures. And they're either at you, you know, institutes of higher learning or they're at a, or they're in companies. And for example, the news it's COO of Baidu, uh, Chi Lu or Lu Chi, obviously. He's a Microsoft guy, right? US trained computer scientist. It's just this really interesting, I don't think there's any other industry in the world where you have this incredible commingling of two nations in such an intimate way. It's not like the auto industry, like, right, you know, like, like, yeah, you have a couple of figures, but it's nowhere where through the ranks of a company, there will be dozens of people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm a Stanford, you know, MBA and I'm a Caltech engineer and I'm, you know, I worked at Google, but now I launched the startup in Shenzhen and all that stuff. It's just really a phenomenal situation. And, and I don't know how that's going to play out with this, you know, looming trade war. With the looming trade war aside, right? I have seen something that is really different in 2017 as compared to the years before. I'm starting to see companies like Total in AI and news. And I can see something like Ofo and Mobike in bicycle sharing. And Ofo and Mobike are now expanding internationally across the world. And they went into uh, Southeast Asia, they went into the US market. I mean, are you going to start seeing a lot more of these uh, Chinese startups starting to go to the US market direct? where you don't really see a lot of very interesting companies. I think I can't for one think about a company last year that was interesting from Silicon Valley. That's like going like the way Uber and Airbnb did in the last couple of years. You see more of Chinese companies going in the other direction as well? They'll try, but it's going to get harder and harder. I think, you know, the other thing is so that Ofo and Mobike are doing this expansion, but I don't, you know, I, it, for them, it's, it's very cheap to do, right? You, you buy a thousand bicycles, it's great publicity, you, the local mayors might even, you know, it, it just looks great, but, but like really what is that costing you? And 
And because it's a, because of the deposit model, it's like, okay, we deploy a thousand bicycles, people pay deposits, great, we're cash positive, you know, you can run it for a year or two and you won't necessarily lose a lot of money. So it's, it's a cheap thing to do because your investors are overseas. It's like they can see it. <laughs> I think that helps. No, I really do think that's part of it. Toutiao, I am skeptical of how they'll be able to do it. So they they pitch themselves as a technology company, and so they 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 can say their argument can be like, look, in the in in China, we'll make a ton of money because we're going to have you know so much traffic, and we're going to sell ads, and we're going to eat Baidu's lunch, and we're also going to you know steal some traffic from Tencent, and you know in China, once you have traffic, you can monetize it in a million different ways. Great. But their argument is that what's really interesting about us is our algorithms are really, really powerful and they can be deployed in different applications. So we need to see what, like, so for example, they bought Musical.ly, which is the only Chinese, and I put is sort of Chinese company that has a, had a success in the U.S. I mean, what will Toutiao do with Musical.ly is the question. Like, what is the value add that they'll do with this that'll make it grow faster? Because it's unclear to me that Musical.ly had much more growth in it, right? It's kind of a novelty app, you know, that people pick up, you play with it for a while, and then it dies. It has the same problem that snap does which is that it's just not to my eyes not very sticky so what will a more powerful algorithm do to that the other thing is and they can argue okay so they can put their technology to use let's say like i mean there is no really effective as far as i can tell uh, news reader like app in the u.s except that there's facebook and twitter so how could totiao i mean maybe they could say look if we stole traffic from baidu and tencent we can steal traffic from facebook and twitter but i i don't know because part of it is like you know the ai model has to you have to teach it how to be effective right it doesn't it's not like the first time you turn it on it'll be useful and so how do you i'm not convinced on how their international expansion will will go I think it's also similar to the case of uh, when Total bought Musical.ly. It's also similar to Tencent's been buying more shares of Snap, but everybody's trying to figure out what they're going to do with Snap as well. Yeah, yeah. And that one, so Tencent sometimes just deploys capital like an investor. Not everything they do is strategic because, you know, they're not getting a board seat on this as far as, you know, we're scratching our heads too and we're trying to report that out. It's in line with some of the other investments they've done overseas, right, where they, they like buy pieces of social media companies all over the place. And I think it's probably a learning process for them to some extent. Like, okay, well, you know, let's put some money on the table, see how it goes. But I can't see that a tent, like Tencent, can you imagine Tencent trying to like take over Snap? But it wouldn't fly, right? It wouldn't fly. The, 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 the U.S. government would, would, would like soil its undies in an apoplectic, you know, fit, right? Personal data, Tencent's, you know, they, all, the, all the stuff about like the evil communist party and Tencent, no, 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 There's just no way they can, you know, in the current climate, there's no way they could successfully do that kind of takeover. And frankly, with the new CFIUS regulations that are, that are likely to pass next year, I don't even know if they'll be able to keep that stake they have now. It all depends on what the US-China trade relations is going to go, I guess. Whether tech companies in both continents are going to boom. Am I right to say that? It is, and there's no indication of it getting better. I think we're entering we're, next year. I think the theme, 
One of the themes will be the sort of worsening relations, and that's going to have play out in some weird ways. I think we still have one more event, which is the rise of TMD, Toutiao, Meituan, Dianping, and Didi. The interesting thing to me is, with the exception of Toutiao, the other two relied heavily on Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent on their successes. Will we see similar companies in the future that resemble the TMD in the sense of relying more on the BAT, or do you see something like Toutiao, which is really an exception to the rule, emerge? Oh, man, if I can make that kind of prediction, I wouldn't be a reporter, I'd be an investor. Well, it is fun to have a crystal ball and have uh, some fun to take a look at this. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So, and the thing that's interesting is, uh, there's lots of interesting, but one one aspect of it is the Meituan Dianpings of the world and the Didis and the Didis and the Ofos and the Mobikes who are sort of attached to one of the the proxy powers is that they want to get independent. Like, it's sort of like this kind of like, it's nice to have Tencent as your backer, but it's also not so nice, right? I want to grow up and be on my own, right? And I think Meituan Dianping is trying to figure out a way to not alienate Tencent and not turn Tencent into an enemy. I mean, so Meituan Dianping is interesting, So right, because they were initially in the Alibaba camp, right? And there's a feeling among some entrepreneurs that, you know, if you go Alibaba, you kind of get sucked into the Borg, right? You become a piece of Alibaba, which is a fine place to be, you know, it's a, it's a great machine and it's, you know, just a, they print money, etc. But you lose your identity. And so I think part of the reason why Meituan Dianping made the switch to Tencent is they're seen as more of a benign sort of passive investor. So they're, they're like, they won't suck you into their, their machine. But it has a lot of integration with WeChat. <laughs> That's already into their machine in a way, right? Yes, but this these are the interesting things. Meituan Yanping, 80% of the traffic, higher than 80%, at least 80% of the traffic does not come from WeChat. I think it was 90% of their traffic is from their own apps. Okay, that's interesting. 20% of their payments are through their own payment platform. So they're already quite independent, much more independent than we, I, you know, than before our reporting. I just thought of them as, you're right, like, it seems that they have somewhat more, they have more independence, it, it appears, than JD.com at this point. But JD.com, I think, is more dependent on Tencent for its traffic. The other thing that's interesting is Meituan Dianping, because it's uh, on-demand services, it is essentially the foot soldiers for the propagation of uh, Tenpei, right? Because they go to, Meituan Yanping goes to every little mom and pop, and right, like commerce in China is this insanely fragmented thing. It's not like there's a ton of restaurant chains. It's actually, it's all like mom and pop, little tiny shops, little corner stores. It's just a nightmare. And to get everybody on your payment platform, you got to send a foot soldier block by block, street by street, to be like, here, you should use Tenpay. These are our rates. And da, 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 da. So, and arguably, Tencent really needs Meituan to keep doing that, right? Because they they need Meituan to bring that traffic to spread the the usage of of, of Tenpay. Now, as for another company coming up out of the blue, it's entirely possible because there are still there's so much money still floating around. There's so much dry powder among the VCs both the domestic and the foreign, that it's totally possible. The other thing, to remember, that the Chinese consumer is incredibly fickle. My favorite example of this is only in China would people buy a car made by a battery maker. Like if Duracell launched a car, people are like, what are you talking about? It's a Duracell. I'm not going to buy a car made by Duracell. Are you kidding me? BYD, battery maker, became one of the biggest car makers in China because there's no legacy, right? It's not like my dad owned an Oldsmobile, so I'll buy an Oldsmobile my dad, you know, like, no, you, no one's dad owned the car, right? I mean, it's a, until maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So there's not that same sort of consumer loyalty. And there's a willingness and openness to experimentation. 
I think this is interesting. Then what about DD then? I mean, they are sucked into the SoftBank ride-sharing empire now. So there's a question of whether DD is going to go out of China and take Uber on. But then the question is, there's only so much, so many markets that you can have a fight. <laughs> so yeah, so Brazil's next on the menu for them. I think DD's problems are more. They got to watch out because they they the fight isn't over back home either, right? People are still raising big money for rival car ride hailing back home, which we've been like Meituan Yanping is like seriously looking at ride hailing. Baidu is backing another ride hailing company in China that I'd never heard of. So there's still it's not like China's a done deal. It's interesting that DD's overseas expansion. I'm curious to see. I'd, I'd love to know what they think of SoftBank trying to buy into Uber. If they see it as like, great, you know, that'll neutralize the competitor and then we'll just be one giant machine. But these guys are super ambitious, right? And it's like, in, in the Chinese context, it's interesting when you talk to entrepreneurs, like valuation and control matter. It's not just like, oh, I'll get rich, but like, I want to be the guy or the woman in charge of this. And I want to have the $100 billion valuation. I was talking to a senior banker and he was saying like, well, everyone's really thinking right now in China, like, who's going to be the next $100 billion company? I said, well, who cares what the what the valuation is? What, isn't it more about, like, what your profits are and your revenue? He said, no, 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 no. They want the bragging rights of being the $100 billion company. And this is why a lot of these mergers become super complicated because the egos involved are enormous. And that's true in the U.S. as well. So you got to think, like, okay, Didi's founders are not going to be like, yeah, sure, we'd merge with Uber, great, yeah, well, you know, I'll give up this thing that I built with blood, sweat, and tears. I'd love to be in a boardroom meeting with these guys and just be able to be able to hear what they really think about, like, soft bank courting uh, Uber. Yeah, but it's different these days now. Uber don't have a founder CEO, you see. It could be the other way around, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So my another prediction is, this is my prediction. Gene Leo will be installed as the Uber CEO. <laughs> SoftBank will do the investment and then they go with Gene Leo and that. Think about the optics, right? That's true. Yeah, That's, that would be interesting if that would happen. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> Sounds like a very difficult possibility, but I mean, we are just looking at what's going to happen in the year ahead. So... We have come to one more thing just before we going to close the conversation. So next year is going to be interesting because Xiaomi is going IPO in 2018. I saw your Twitter discussion this morning. So how did it go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So, you know, Xiaomi has already been talking to bankers and uh, they're going to be doing um, asking banks to pitch coming weeks. And it's probably going to be one of the biggest, probably be the biggest tech IPO of next year. And the question is, what's the valuation going to be? And also kind of why now? Uh, Reuters was, had uh, these bankers, uh, speaking off the record, salivating at like, it's going to be a $100 billion IPO. And Bloomberg was sort of also speculating at the $50 billion IPO level. The people I've spoken to said, you know what, it's really early days in the talks. And you got to figure that it's got to have, like a lot of it I think matters on how the last round of fundraising was structured and what kind of ratchets it has and what kind of, you can't over, the, the price they find has to be attractive enough to bring in investors, but not so low that it angers, you know, that, that it starts triggering all sorts of punitive mechanisms on the, on the, the earlier investors. So I, I don't know how that's going to play. And also, I think that the market, you know, the window this year was obviously super hot, right? And so there's been this rush to IPO by Chinese tech companies to seize the moment. But, you know, will that momentum still be there next year? Or is Xiaomi big enough where it could kind of 
doesn't need sort of a market momentum, but can kind of exist on its own. I think what's on its side, on its favor, is it's going to probably list in Hong Kong because it's such a natural market for it here, especially now that there's the there's the connecting mechanism where investors in the mainland can buy shares in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And it's such a natural that you could then have, you know, Chinese retail institutional investors buying into Xiaomi, which they understand, right? It's such a like, I use the phone, I, I, I see the phone on the street, I'm going to buy the stock. Whereas if you list in the US, it's a phone that like, you kind of have to like go through this process of like, explaining what the company is and like how they're growing. And you know, like, yeah, investors will understand, but it's not as as immediate and tactile as as listing it in Hong Kong, where it has like this natural presence. As the markets, as all sorts of, it's, the Hong Kong market has really been benefiting from all these other capital controls. So Chinese money can't do you know real estate in in, in Vancouver as much. So a lot of the money instead will be going to the next best thing, which will be the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So I think it, that that will still be true. But I don't know. There seems to be a somewhat so, a general softening on the tech theme happening now that that could still you know impact their chances for an ipo i think this is going to be something we will continue to watch and of course the next time i'm going to get you back on the show and we can dive into some of these topics in a deeper way since you covered them <laughs> in the most interesting way possible so shai thank you for coming on the show but in closing i will always like to ask two questions so my first question is can you recommend a book podcast movie or anything that has impact your personal work life recently planet money Okay, Best. NPR. Yep, I listened yeah. to that too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they, those guys are just so good. I, I love Planet Money. So Planet Money, you got you got to listen to them, and Sound Opinions, which is a music podcast, which is how I keep from sounding like an old man when I talk about the latest tunes. And then books. I don't read much because I've got two toddlers at home, so that the whole reading thing hasn't been happening. But I did read Duncan Clark's piece on Alibaba, which the book title I don't. I used to have a book right here, but I can't find it. Uh, anyway, Duncan Clark is one of the premier China tech consultants. It's called Alibaba, the house that Jamma built or something like that. Anything by Michael, ah, a liar's poker writer, his guy, Michael Lewis. Yes. If you want a, a model of how to write lucid, beautiful business prose, it's Michael. anything by Michael Lewis. It's just phenomenal. My favorite one is still the big shot. <laughs> yeah, he puts us all to shame. Yeah, and Peter Hessler, anything by Peter Hessler. If you want to understand China, Peter Hessler, few, few have the depth and the subtlety that, that Peter Hessler does when it comes to writing about China. Okay, my last question then, how do my audience find you? I smoke signals, phone, fax, telepathy, teleporting. So my email is shai, S-H-A-I, at theinformation.com. Our website is theinformation.com. My Twitter handle is at BeijingScribe. Please tweet angry notes at me. I have a signal if you're interested. I'm on WeChat at shy.oster or shy-oster. Hold on, let me just verify this. Oh my goodness, where does my WeChat? You gotta be on WeChat these days, right? I, the one thing that drives me nuts is, you know, why doesn't WhatsApp have a QR code to scan in the context, right? It's just so hard to put in a new contact. So uh, yeah, my, my WeChat is shy, S-H-A-I dash Oster, O-S-T-E-R. Call me with tips, call me with complaint, reach out, story ideas, good news, bad news, you know, let us know. And I get one thing I want to say, the, the thing about the information is that we don't shy away from hard stories. Uh, you know, most notably, my colleague, uh, Reid Albregati, has been writing phenomenal pieces about sexism in Silicon Valley, breaking news on binary capital, most recently on the creator of the Android and how he was let go from Google for inappropriate relations. And this latest deep dive he did on Google 
Google's rather permissive attitudes in the executive suite. So we don't, we're not afraid of hard stories. You know, we've been threatened and with lawsuits, but we'll do, you know, you know, our Jessica Lesson is a very brave publisher and, and editor. And, and so, yeah, so we, we, you know, if you have something hard, we'll do it. It's not that we're looking for only to do bad news stories, but I feel that there's so much hype in tech coverage that it's really important to have somebody who looks at it. And, and as I say, like, we take tech seriously the same way that, you know, you should to write about banking or the auto industry is the way you should write about the business of tech, because arguably the business of tech is now more important than banking or the auto industry. And there's just so much cheerleading and kind of like fanboy journalism, and that's doing everybody a disservice. Okay, but bear that in mind. You can find me at Bernard Leung, bernardleung.com. You can actually reach at me at bleungc.bu. So you can also hear us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and tune in, and of course, Google Play in the US market. Please give me a five-star rating on iTunes, and uh, of course, recommend us on Overcast, and most importantly, just tweet to me your feedback. I get email feedbacks all the time. So once again, Shai, thank you for coming on the show, and I would love to have you back next year. Thanks for the invitation.